idea what it means to be a conservative or a liberal in the political arena. You know, there's considerable debate as to how to identify who is which. And we muddy the water with blue dog Democrats and rhinos. But we have a pretty good idea which is which. Well, the same is true in the world of biblical interpretation. Conservatives are those who view the Bible conservatively, who take the scriptures literally, who read it as a historically accurate account of what really happened. Liberals are those who tend to read the Bible figuratively, who view much of it as mythological and see it as primarily a book of fictional allegories that teach moral truths. Now, obviously, there is some overlap between categories. You know, even conservatives acknowledge that the scriptures contain figures of speech, and not everything is to be taken literally. And liberals do realize that the biblical record contains much that is historically true. Still, there is a philosophical divide between the two that make each dismissive of the other. Liberals tend to dismiss conservatives as uneducated and gullible, and conservatives tend to write off liberals as unbelievers. And I'll never forget the furor that uh, reverberated through the community when one of the ladies from our church in Kansas confronted a visiting preacher from New Zealand. He had said something about the story of Daniel in a Bible study at the senior center. But the way he said story raised a red flag. When confronted, he acknowledged that he believed it to be fictional, an Old Testament story that was intended to be taken allegorically. Well, he was quickly labeled a liberal heretic, and our ladies spread the word. So what if it was discovered that the Apostle Paul used an Old Testament story allegorically? Should he also be branded as a liberal? Not necessarily. You know, a story can be fictional or it can be factual. And even a true story can be taken allegorically. To do so is to simply find something of significance beneath the surface of the story. So an allegory can be a spiritual truth embodied in a historical event. And that's what Paul is going to do in our text for today. So don't be shocked when you discover that Paul wants us to view a passage of Scripture allegorically. It doesn't mean he rejected it as historically true. It's just that he is going beneath the obvious to find a deeper meaning. Now, the rabbis loved to do that, and Paul was trained as a rabbi. 
So he's going to take a favorite technique of the Jewish rabbis, one the Judaizers no doubt were using to sway the Galatians and use it against them. He knew he could make some real gains if he fought them with their own kind of logic. So he brings his argument about the incompatibility of law and grace, the difference between bondage to the law and liberty in Christ to a close. And he does so with an allegory. So let's not be shocked by Paul's handling of the text here. Let's simply enjoy it and learn from it. But before we get to the allegory, we must have a simple presentation of the facts. And that's where he begins in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, Paul begins with, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, that's, that's a bit confusing to us until we remember that the law was more than just a collection of commandments. It also contained the foundational history of God's work and his people. The Jews referred to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the law. And most of the first five books is history. So Paul is telling the Galatians to listen to all of the law if they want to understand it. And he calls their attention to one particular account in the law, the story of Abraham and his sons. Reminding them that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The son by the bondwoman, Ishmael was born according to the flesh, but the son by the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. Now, those of Jewish heritage immediately knew what Paul was talking about. They knew the story well. It might do us good to quickly review it this morning. Abraham and Sarah, or as they were known at the time, Abram and Sarai were a childless couple living in Haran when God spoke to Abraham and told him to leave his father's house and to go to a land he would show him. God also told him that he would make from him a great nation and that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, at that time, Abraham was 75 and Sarah, 65. And as I mentioned, they were childless. After traveling to the land of Canaan, God reaffirmed the promise, telling Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the particle of dust on the earth and the stars in the heavens. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God considered Abraham to be righteous. 
Because he had faith in God's word. But by the time Abraham was 85 and Sarah 75, Sarah decided they had to do something to help God keep his promise. They were still childless. And she assumed she was the reason. She decided if Abraham was to have any children, he would need another wife. So she told him to take her handmaiden Hagar, an Egyptian, as a wife. Abraham listened to his wife, and Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. But he was not the son of promise. And God would make that clear some 14 years later. When Abraham was 99, God appeared to him again and told him he would have another son, only this time by Sarah. And that it would be through him, through that son, that the promises would be fulfilled. Now, Abraham fell on his face laughing. He was nearly a hundred. And Sarah was 90. He couldn't believe they would have a child. When Sarah later heard it, she also laughed. And God appropriately said their son would be called Isaac, which means laughter. But it was no joke. Even though Sarah was far beyond the age of childbearing, she bore a son, Isaac. A son born through the promise of God, supernaturally. The one through whom the covenant would pass and through whom the Savior would come. Now, that's the beginning of the story, and that's where Paul began. Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman, one born according to the flesh and one born through the promise of God. Now Paul's going to interpret the story and point out the spiritual truth embodied in this historical account. Verses 24 through 27. This is allegorically speaking. For these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Allegorically speaking, now Paul is criticized by some for doing this. The rabbis often misused the scriptures to make a point, and we would be rightfully cautioned not to do so. No, to take a biblical account, turn it into an allegory, find some deep hidden truth in the text, and then declare that that is what the Bible is teaching is very dangerous. 
Many false doctrines are born that way. But Paul's an apostle. And as such, he is uniquely inspired by the Holy Spirit. If he sees something lying beneath the surface of the text, not to worry, it's really there. Besides, he didn't come up with a new idea from the allegory. He merely saw an illustration of a previously revealed truth. In two women, Hagar and Sarah, Paul saw a picture of two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which he linked to the earthly city of Jerusalem, and one from the Jerusalem above, the spiritual city of God. In Hagar, he saw a picture of a covenant that brings bondage, a covenant based on law, law that made slaves of those born under it, just as Ishmael was born a slave because his mother was a slave. Paul is simply saying that those who are under the law are slaves, in bondage to a taskmaster who demands perfection. And Hagar is a picture of that kind of religious system, a system born on Sinai, but at that time centered in Jerusalem. On the other hand, Paul said Sarah pictures a covenant that gives birth to free children. Just as Isaac was born the free son of a free woman, so we who are born of the spiritual Jerusalem are born spiritually free, not in bondage, to a religious system that demands more than it can deliver, but free to come before our Father in heaven with the full assurance of our acceptability before him. Now, in Ishmael's case, he was loved by his father. But because his mother was Sarah's servant, his access to Abraham was limited. Both he and his mother were under Sarah's authority, and she restricted Ishmael's access to Abraham. In a similar way, having a relationship to the Heavenly Father based upon obedience to the law restricts access to God. If any sin, any sin at all, can be found in our life, we lose the right to come before a holy God. Obviously, then, anyone who thinks they can come before God on the basis of obedience to the law is going to be sorely disappointed. It cannot be done. No one can earn an acceptable standing before God on the basis of obedience. The law keeps people away from God, just as Ishmael's being the son of Hagar kept him away from Abraham. The good news, however, is that the barren woman, Sarah, would one day become the mother of innumerable children because all would be given the opportunity to choose their spiritual mother. We can choose Hagar as our mother and be slaves to the law or choose to become sons and daughters of Sarah 
and be given the same freedom to come before the father that Isaac had. The choice is ours to make. The Galatians had made the choice to be like Isaac when they became Christians. But now the Judaizers were trying to draw them back into Hagar's household. So Paul makes a very specific application of the story as the next step in his allegory. Verses 28 through 30. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Now, Paul gets very pointed in his application of the allegory here. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. The Galatians were children of promise. They had come into relationship with their heavenly father through a promise, a promise he made and fulfilled, a promise that he would make them acceptable to himself and adopt them into his family if they would just entrust themselves to him. Well, this they had done. They had come into the family of God through a promise. There was another story for Ishmael. His birth, Paul said, was according to the flesh, and there was nothing extraordinary about it. Now, Abraham was rather old when Ishmael was born. But even after the death of Sarah, he would father six more sons through Keturah. So there was nothing miraculous about his being a father at 86, when he would live to be 175. And Hagar was apparently a young woman who would be expected to bear a child. That's why Sarah suggested it. Ishmael's birth, therefore, was quite normal, a natural, physical birth. Isaac's birth, however, was through a promise. And, God, and Paul says it was according to the Spirit. You see, Sarah was past the age of bearing. She had gone through menopause, and it was impossible for her to give birth. By natural means. But God intervened. And he caused her to miraculously produce an ovum that with Abraham's help became Isaac. That, Paul says, is a picture of one born not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit of God. A picture of one born into the family of God through the activity of the Spirit of God. It's a picture of the second birth that makes a person into a child of God, into a Christian. Paul then makes another interesting point. He says, he who was born of the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Isaac. And it is a similar thing. 
was then going on. The sons of flesh were persecuting the sons of promise. Now, the only record we have of anything coming close to persecution of Isaac by Ishmael is Ishmael's mocking Isaac at his weaning. We do know there's a lot of animosity between them and their mothers. And that Hagar and Ishmael were eventually sent away from Abraham's home. We also know that Ishmael then lived in the wilderness as a warrior and an archer, had 12 sons, and became the father of the Arab nations. I think it's safe to assume there was continued animosity between Isaac and Ishmael. And there's no reason to doubt Paul when he indicates that Ishmael actually persecuted Isaac. We know the Arab nations continue to be at odds with Israel, even to this day. Paul's reference to the persecution still taking place in his day, however, wasn't between the Arabs and the Israelis. He was saying that just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, so were the Jews, those who were physically related to Abraham, persecuting the Christians, those who were spiritually related to Abraham. And Paul knew that persecution firsthand, both as a Jew who persecuted the Christians and then as a Christian who was persecuted by the Jews. And now the Christians were being enslaved by the Judaizers. And the Galatian Christians didn't even know it. But by putting them back under the yoke of the law, they were putting them back into bondage. And they were nullifying the cross of Christ and reducing Christianity to a sect of Judaism. That's why the Judaizers and their teaching could not be incorporated into the Christian community in Galatia or anywhere else. And that's why Paul tells them to do to the Judaizers what Abraham had done to Hagar and her son. They were to cast them out. Those who are only born of the flesh, even if they appear to be religious and have a religious heritage, are not heirs with those who are born of the Spirit. And to associate closely with them, to fellowship with them as brothers in Christ, is to invite conflict and persecution. And to run the risk of their undermining your faith and robbing you of your freedom in Christ. Paul therefore ends his allegory with an exhortation. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So then, brethren, this is the conclusion and the exhortation to his allegory. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. We didn't come into God's family through a religious system with a headquarters on earth 
that tries to get a man to God through obedience to its laws. No, no. We were born into God's family. Through the Spirit of God, the free woman who has access to the Father, because she and the Father are one. And our birth was made possible by God's only Son, the one who was sent to free us from bondage to sin and death by taking our sins upon himself and dying in our place. He made it possible for us to be born again. He paid the price for our freedom, and he therefore expects us to be free, free from sin, free from the condemnation of sin, and free to come into God's presence as the children of promise. Paul, therefore, exhorts the Galatians and us, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm in your faith that it is Christ that makes you acceptable to the Father. If you've come to Christ in faith, confess Him as Lord, shared in His death through baptism, and are currently trusting Him to keep you clean, you are acceptable to God. And Christ will keep you clean. You do not have to put on a yoke of slavery to the law to stay in God's good graces. Now, Paul will make it clear in this fifth chapter that that does not mean you can turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh and fill your life with deeds of the flesh. To do so would be a denial of your spiritual relationship with the Father. But as long as you are trusting in Christ to save you, you never have to worry about being good enough or doing enough to get to heaven. Christ has taken care of that for us on the cross. So don't let anyone convince you that you've got to subscribe to their list of do's and don'ts to be saved or to maintain your salvation. Now, again, that's not to say that there are no do's and don'ts for Christians. God has revealed his will for us in many things. And if we love him, we will want to please him. But he is not going to disown us for disappointing him. And our relationship with him is not going to crumble if we fail him. Because our relationship with him was not established by what we did for him. It was established by what he did for us on the cross. And it's the way of the cross that leads home. It's the cross that makes us acceptable to the Father 
and gives us the opportunity to be born into his family as sons and daughters of promise with free access to the Father at all times. If you want that access, it can be yours. Through the cross, come and claim for yourself what Christ has made available.